everybody. Welcome to MHTV. We're really pleased to have you with us tonight. Um, Vanessa's got some tech difficulties, so she'll be tweeting away, but please absolutely get in touch with her. You can do that on Twitter by following the hashtag MHTV, or you can just join in the Facebook Live conversation. And we're talking about psychedelics today. We've got a fantastic guest with us. Um, it's a subject I find really, really fascinating, and I'm sure that you will too. So let me give a cross now to Harry. Tell us, tell us who you are, Harry. <laughs> Hi, Nikki. So I'm Harry Sumnall. I'm a professor in substance use at the Public Health Institute at Liverpool John Moores University. Uh, so I'm in, interested in everything about drugs and the people who use them. Uh, my main focus is probably not psychedelics, although I've had an interest in psychedelics for over 20 years. And it's what got me interested in the whole drugs field to begin with. Uh, but more recently, I'm perhaps more interested in public health implications of substance use, maybe focusing on the more problematic side of things. But I've, but I've kept up my interest in psychedelics. I think they're a fascinating class of compounds. Yeah, me too. And they're very much in the news at the minute, and particularly in terms of sort of mental health and solutions and ideas around that. So could you just ask you know, what we're talking about? We're talking about psychedelics. What, what do we mean? I think uh, definitions of psychedelics have changed over the years. Traditionally, when perhaps the prototypical psychedelic LSD was first discovered in 1943, it was probably quite easy to describe what psychedelics were. They had a recognised mechanism of action in particular parts of the brain. They produced perceptual changes, changes in emotion, uh, how we think and feel and understand the world around us, how we connect with other people as well. And for many years, that was probably the, uh, the traditional view of what psychedelics are. But the name psychedelics itself means mind manifesting. And if we think about perhaps other drugs which don't fit that classic definition, then I think the definition has begun to expand. Yeah. So we've got also got drugs such as MDMA or ecstasy, which according to classic definitions wouldn't be psychedelic. It produces slightly different effects to uh, LSD uh, and uh, psilocybin mushrooms, for example, I would include that. I would also include ketamine, which is a dissociative yeah. drug. It's used in clinical practice, but it wouldn't traditionally be seen as a psychedelic on, the, on the, the same level as LSD. But I think if we're looking at this mind manifesting, manifestation definition, then it clearly falls into that. And mm -hmm. some people even argue that cannabis could be considered a psychedelic not necessarily around its pharmacology, but some of its effects at high doses. And again, how people interpret and make sense of some of the effects of cannabis. So it could include a whole range of drugs. But I think for me, it would include MDMA, LSD, psilocybin, ayahuasca, plant, plant uh, uh, mixtures, but also uh, potent drugs such as DMT, dimethyltryptamine, and of course, psilocybin mushrooms, magic mushrooms, which are always in the news. Always. Yeah. <laughs> don't try that at home, people. Please don't. <laughs> For sure. So when we're talking about this um, sort of psychedelic renaissance, which is something that a term you see banded around a bit, what, what's that about? Why a psychedelic? Yeah, so this is a term which emerged probably in, in the mid-2000s. And it purportedly was, was in relation to a renewed interest in psychedelics, not just in relation to scientific and clinical interests, but maybe a public interest. So it, it's mm. kind of suggesting that there's the blurring between scientific and mainstream boundaries are there. And the reason why it suggested the Renaissance is because when LSD was first discovered back in the 1940s, for the next 20 or so years, 
there was a real energy around the science and research into this. It was a, the dawn of psychopharmacology and psychiatric research. At the time, there was no effective treatments for severe mental illness, psychosis. So LSD was extensively studied in a range of illnesses, a range of conditions, everything from childhood autism to people with alcohol use disorders. And of course, there's the social dimensions as well. LSD and eventually other psychedelics crossed mm. from the clinic into mm. mainstream culture. And we had the psychedelic mm. 60s, of course. Mm. And then there was a response to that. Uh, perhaps it's a completely unsurprising response from governments and law enforcement. Mm. And scientific interest began to wane. It became a lot more difficult to conduct mm. research into these drugs, beginning from the mid to late 1960s. It carried on in the 70s to a, to a certain extent, particularly in Europe, which is often forgotten about. Mm -hmm. I think there's been some fantastic research in Europe around psychedelics. So the scientific and clinical investigation disappeared until maybe the late 90s, early 2000s. But that's one aspect of it. I think the public interest and the mm -hmm. non-medical use and non-scientific use in inverted commas, that's always been there. So people have always been interested in taking psychedelics for, for whatever reasons. But when we talk about Renaissance, I, I you know, sometimes think, well, what does this actually represent? In terms of scientific interest, particularly around therapies, yes, it, it's true to say that, that, that there's been an increase in the number of studies, particularly over the last five or 10 years, some really interesting studies, and I know that we'll, we'll talk about that a bit later on. Yeah. But in terms of non-medical use, uh, I don't think there's been a massive increase in levels of use, so recreational use for one for a better term. So if we look at the general population, so look at some of the government surveys around this, bit of an underestimate, but less than 1% of the adult population would have used a psychedelic in the previous year. Uh, look towards perhaps younger age groups, maybe about 2 or 3%. Uh, it does add up. So about two and a half million people in England and Wales have had a psychedelic experience in their life. But in terms of the total numbers, it's still relatively low compared to cannabis, cocaine or, or even MDMA. So and I often think that the psychedelic renaissance is, is often a ripple effect. Yeah. But, and and this, is, this has been true from the 1960s onwards, that yes, there's been core interest and core groups interested in this. But I think it's actually the indirect effects of psychedelics, which has had most cultural and social influence. Yeah. Back in the 60s, you know, we can, we can look at the, uh, the influence on music, for example, art, yeah. advertising, culture, literature. Yeah. So I think that that's also been the case yeah. more recently as well. I think there's been more people who've been indirectly affected by psychedelics than have actually taken psychedelics themselves. Oh, I'm sure that's right. Yeah, I'm sure that's right. Well, I can remember, you know, that the, the first read of things like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and things like that, they had, you know, real profound effect on the, the people I was at uni with, for sure. Massive impact. And also you have that kind of rebellion is always kind of like baked in. And kind of the places we're sort of seeing it pop up now in terms of cultural presence um we're seeing it a little bit in kind of like the kind of ecology movement of places and we're seeing it in terms of like with kind of the tech the tech brain with things like microdosing i wonder if you could just sort of explain these kind of different, different ideas that are coming up 
Yeah, so I, I don't I don't think there's any there's nothing inherent in the nature of psychedelics and their effects mm. which lend themselves to be uh, uh, most appropriate for those for those domains. Although there has actually been some interesting retrospective studies looking at nature connectedness in psychedelics, mm. which evokes images of eco warriors and hippies and things like that. Uh, but I think it perhaps represents the demographics. So particularly in the tech sector, you have young usually highly educated, usually affluent population, yeah. who would be a population who traditionally would be interested in psychedelic drugs more generally. Mm. Uh, and I think in terms of the availability of psychedelics, then there has been, there are some suggestions that it's probably easier to access them. And with the advent of online marketplaces on the so-called dark net as well. So Accessing psychedelics has also become a technological activity to a certain extent as well. Mm. And there's always been this tradition because my interest in, in psychedelics has always been about reading about them, reading about the implications. Uh, and so particularly within Silicon Valley, but not exclusively, mm. over the last, I would say, 10 years or so, a, a renewed interest in psychedelics, how it might aid with problem solving, how it might aid with creativity. And that's not a new idea because that was some of the, uh, uh, what some groups in the 60s were also looking at. There's an interesting case study about how psychiatric hospitals in Canada were redesigned by arch uh, architects who'd taken psychedelics. So there's always been a, an overlap between psychedelics and creativity. Yeah. But I think, you know, the, the, the timing was right, the availability was right, there was an interest in this. And so it has been influential, particularly around software development, development of the internet as well. But you, you mentioned microdosing. Mm. This is really interest, a really interesting topic. And microdosing has received massive attention over the last few years. Even if you've never heard of the weird and wonderful range of psychedelics, you might in some way have heard of microdosing. So microdosing is where somebody would regularly take what we might describe as a sub-threshold or sub-perceptual dose of a psychedelic, whether that's... It's like homeopathy. Well, it's interesting that you say that because the idea is that microdosing would have an impact on cognitive performance, creativity, imagination, mm. uh, have a cognitive effect without producing psychedelic effects because the doses yeah. are really low. Uh, and from a pharmacological perspective or a psychopharmacological perspective, it's interesting, you know, what's actually happening here because these doses are really low. And we know from clinical studies that in order to have therapeutic effects, you need a full-blown psychedelic experience. So what's happening here with really low doses? Now, there's many advocates who, who swear by the power of psychedelic, uh, mm -hmm. psychedelic microdosing. And a whole industry has developed around this. Mm -hmm. People uh, offer coaching, training around mm -hmm. this, massive media interest, of course. And it's, it's interesting because you mentioned before about rebellion and psychedelics and ecology and the, the classic outdated mm -hmm. image of the hippie, but mm -hmm. it was very much focused on a pro-capitalistic use of psychedelics to increase yeah. performance, increase yeah. productivity, which maybe fits in really well with Silicon Valley and, and the world that we're living at the moment. There's been very little research into microdosing practices. So back in the early days in the 1960s, there was research into low doses, but not this regular sub 
threshold doses that we're talking about. Mm. There's been some clinical studies, and obviously clinical studies are providing some of the best evidence, suggesting some very subtle changes in very obscure aspects of cognitive performance without mm. personal aware, awareness of that that's happening. But what the real world relevance of that is, it's very hard to say, you know, you perform well on a lab test. Does it actually yeah. mean you become more creative? And very recently, sorry, my last point is there was a, a study, a naturalistic study of microdosing, a very elegant design where people would prepare their own microdoses. Mm. It was overseen by a, a research team. And that actually found that microdosing performed no better than placebo. Uh, and both the SIBO group and the microdosing group reported similar outcomes, which tells you uh, something rather profound about the placebo effect as well and the power mm. of the human mind to want to believe. And I think mm. maybe with a lot of the media focus and dare I say it, some of the hype around microdosing, mm. I think there probably is a very real placebo effect. Uh, and, and, and if there is a true effect of microdosing, the research hasn't revealed it just yet. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? And the other thing I think thinking about the kind of ecology, sometimes you see it popping up in kind of, um, sort of shamanistic practice or new waves of thinking about spirituality and connectedness. So you sort of, uh, but I always find that a little bit uncomfortable when it's somebody else's cultural religious belief and then some guy just pops down. Like, yeah, a yeah. Of it and then bogs off home again. I, I find that a bit. Yeah, I, th I think that's an important point, uh, and this is mm. a crit. I think this is a valid criticism. My personal view is that mm. there definitely is this spiritual appropriation. Uh, and the, the most notable example of this is the so-called ayahuasca retreat, where rich, rich Westerners, North America, UK, etc. Uh, spend thousands of pounds, thousands of dollars traveling to Brazil or other parts of South America to, to regain authenticity. Now, that's not to paint everybody with the same mm. brush of criticism because there are, you know, very genuine people, but it, it almost seems like a, a bucket list sort of yeah. thing. And uh, uh, some of these retreats, some of these ayahuasca retreats, you know, they've been featured on Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop. Uh, website and things like that. And, and I think it's more about, you know, mm. we, often, we often hear of criticisms that people go to the Louvre just to tick off the Mona Lisa without mm. maybe fully engaging in this. Is there an element mm. of that? Maybe. Uh, but I think, you know, you can understand why people want to do this, this spiritual mm. yearning uh, for Caucasians, you know, white Americans and white British people who don't really have a spiritual tradition ourselves, uh, you know, very poor traditional religious engagement with with uh, Christianity, et cetera, for example. So it's, you know, maybe it's understandable that people want to seek meaning through other cultures. But mm. but I think there are some valid criticisms about that this is, this is not just a holiday. This yeah. is somebody's history, culture, lived reality, and it's been mm. sold for profit. And it's mm. usually the, it's the people who've developed this cultural practice, these spiritual practice over millennium sometimes, mm. are usually the last people for, to benefit from, from these sorts of spiritual retreats. But, mm. you know, that's just my slightly cynical personal view. <laughs> I think it's very interesting because it kind of keys into a lot of, of what we've been talking about in terms of, you know, the the origins of psychedelic, psychedelics often being about kind of community and connection and expansion. And now when you're looking at how it's being used, maybe it's a sign of our culture that we're in, is we're looking at a lot more kind of individual performance management. Uh, it's 
you know, it's sort of fucking the joy out of it a little bit, isn't it? And this idea that, you know, instead of actually thinking about how you live in the world, that you can just buy an experience and be better. You don't have to invest. You have to earn earn your right to access. In a yeah, it, it, it could be. I think there's some truth in that, but but mm. I also think there's some there's many genuine people within yeah. psychedelic communities, oh, and true. there always has been from from the the sixties onwards. And it was always mm. a criticism then that you know people would talk about spirituality and religion and nirvana, and the criticism was always, well, you have to do the hard work. Mm. Now, you shouldn't be taking the cable car up the mountain. You should be climbing up with a pickaxe and ropes and doing the hard work. Mm. And a valid response to that would be, well, yes, that's fine. But the key thing is, what do you do with the insights and the revelations yeah. once you achieve them? That's where the hard work starts. How mm. you get there, does that really matter, so to speak? You know, it's what happens next. And uh, the, the, we often think of uh, you know, to use a cliche that psychedelics and psychedelic culture is maybe this hippy-dippy thing, which I think is mm. slightly outdated. But more recently, particularly with a focus on US politics and particularly mm. elements of right-wing politics and the, the conspiracy theories that they seem to love over there, you know, the uh, the guy in the Jamiroquai hat and invading the, uh, the White House, there's also mm. interest in psychedelics on that side of the political spectrum as well. It's not exclusive maybe to the, mm. the leftist position Absolutely. as well so so it's, so it's a it's a culture which i think which is relevant to many different communities i think that must leave things very complicated for um a psychedelic researcher desperately trying to have uh, meaningful um research that's taken seriously and debated with nuance you've got QAnon on one side and you've yeah, got yeah. goop on the other it must be a very difficult place to be operating as a, as, as a yeah and psychedelic you know my observations of that is that psychedelic researchers in the so-called psychedelic renaissance have been very clear and specifically differentiating their research from wider psychedelic culture. And they need to do that, particularly in the US and the UK, because of the laws and regulations and restrictions around this, but also the baggage, the historical baggage around psychedelic culture. So you can understand that it's actually, if, if we really want to understand these compounds, we need to subject them to the same research designs, the same rigor, the same types of investigations as we would do any other medicine or psychotherapeutic practice, psychological mm -hmm. intervention. So it's important that that's positioned like that. But mm -hmm. I think, unfortunately, this is, to a certain extent, set up conflict because a lot of the psychedelic research, the clinical ap applications, has actually emerged from underground and lay practices, so folk pharmacology, folk practices, mm -hmm. Uh, which was taking place from the 70s onwards when most of the mainstream research wasn't taking place because scientists were too, weren't interested or too mm. scared to do this. So there's almost a sense that, okay, you people outside of universities and research centres, you've laid the groundwork. Okay, thank you very much. We'll take this now and see you and goodbye. We'll mm. have, get the permissions to develop our practices and our interventions uh, but your work should stay under the control of the law. You know, it should still be illegal. And I think to a certain extent, there's been some tensions around that. And I don't yeah. think it's been adequately resolved, but I can understand both sides of the coin. Mm. So where are we then with research at the moment? Because we've had, we've had a look at the kind of context and the kind of social 
milieu it's all taking place in. So what what what's the actual reality of, of psychedelic research at the moment? Well, I, I think if you pick up any magazine or newspaper, uh, you would think we're on the verge of a revolution in mental health treatment. Mm. I would say we've probably taken the first tentative steps. And I think it's really important to put this into context that clinical research has shown that these drugs have promise. Mm. But we're talking about small scale research in highly selected patient or healthy volunteers, often uh, with a lack of independent verification uh, and not really the sorts of research and the sorts of findings which we need to be able to develop, for example, clinical recommendations. Mm. So most of the research has been done with psilocybin. So not yeah. literally giving people magic mushrooms, but the extracted psilocybin, mm. synthetic MDMA and LSD as well. There's been interesting research looking at quite a broad range of uh, mental health issues, anxiety, depression, end of life care, uh, alcohol use disorders, for example, social extreme social anxiety in people with autism. Uh, and so far, the research has been promising. But I think, you know, that's all we can say, that, that most of these sh studies are showing beneficial mm -hmm. effects okay. with the sorts of effect sizes that suggest that it's worth continuing this research. Uh, but just to put it into context, I, I jotted down a few figures because I knew I would Ooh, I would forget okay. this. So I was just looking at a meta-analysis, and the meta-analysis is where you combine different studies and you do some statistical analysis so you can get an overall average effect, so to speak. Uh, and just ignoring the outcomes of that to begin with, then uh, you're talking about maybe if you're talking about randomized controlled trials of about 260 participants in total across all these psychedelic studies. And maybe if you're using non-experimental designs, maybe five or 600. And that's not a lot, because if you look at, for example, uh, the similar sorts of meta-analysis for antidepressants, you know, there you're talking about, uh, had one here, 522 trials with 120,000 participants. And there was a, an interesting study called Project Match, which looked at different psychotherapies. And that's just an individual study, which is not looking at psychedelics. And that had about 1,000 participants. And so the total sum of participants in all these psychedelics is less, is much, much, much less than perhaps more traditional treatments. So we're right back at the start here. And we also know that early phase research, these initial studies, which are just essentially pilot studies designed to show whether you can actually conduct the work, whether the drugs are safe and uh, tolerable, and if you, know, you, you may be producing some initial effects, they're producing large effect sizes. But we know that when for example, you do larger trials with different designs when they're run by independent scientists to try and uh, validate the findings. And those effect sizes lessen, they become a lot less. Uh, so I think that when we see headlines that psychedelics and psychedelic medicines are the answer to the mental mm -hmm. health crisis that we have at the moment, uh, mm -hmm. then I think we need to take that with a pinch of salt. Yes, there's promise, but there's many, many years to go. We've got a long way to go. And I think I think it's important to be responsible about how we discuss these findings. And that's not a criticism of psychedelic researchers who are, mm -hmm. you know, who are very uh, guarded. But some 
in my mind, some of the, uh, particularly some of the, the popular media reporting around these trials is sometimes verges on irresponsible, a uh, lot of hype, maybe mm. even a false promise for, for mm. individuals who are desperate for a treatment, desperate mm. for support. Mm. And in a certain, to a certain extent, it reminds me a lot about some of the hype that emerged around medicinal cannabis before the law was changed in 2018. For several weeks, the papers were full of the medicinal cannabis will cure epilepsy, will help with addiction, anxiety, PTSD, cancer, Crohn's disease, IBS, mm. the whole range of things. And the reality is that it, it it doesn't, you know, the evidence is not there. And I think many patients' mm. hopes were raised. So mm. I, I just hope we can have a bit more of a nuanced and subtle mm. discussion about this promising set of compounds, mm. but recognise we've got many years and many more studies yeah. to go before we even consider mm. uh, delivering these in practice. Absolutely. And I think it's really important to, to mention, <laughs> the, the, I mean, I've got a question through from a student, which I really liked, <laughs> when you want to say, how are they getting people into studies? Aren't drugs illegal? Like, uh, <laughs> thank you, year one, they are. That, <laughs> so that, that, you can be a bit clear about that. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a really good question. So in, in the UK, uh, we have the ABC classification system that most people will be familiar with. So most psychedelics are class A, which, uh, so the, uh, the harshest penalties for possession and supply, et cetera. But that, we also have what's called the Misuse of Drugs Regulations 2001. Now it gets slightly geeky and slightly complicated, but that that outlines activities you can conduct which uh, are permittable activities. So for example, if you have a drug which is in a particular schedule of misuse of drugs regulations, you can administer it to humans, whether that's in a hospital as part of a scientific trial. Now at the moment, most of the psychedelics have no recognized medicinal use. Ketamine, if you include ketamine, is slightly different, but LSD, psilocybin. So they're what we call Schedule 1 drugs. So you can get permission to do research with this, clinical research, if you have a home office license, if it's been conducted in a recognised research institute, if you have the appropriate qualifications and insurance, if it's stored correctly, et cetera, et cetera. And this means that psychedelic research at the moment is very, very expensive. Uh, so many researchers in the, uh, who are doing this type of research want mm. the government to reschedule some of these compounds, which wouldn't affect those non-medical penalties, you know, the possession and supply, but might make it easier and cheaper to do legitimate and inverted commas research mm. into this. So it's a good question, but there are ways yeah. to do research into these drugs. We've got another couple coming through. Um, one was if... If magic, how can you tell? Basically, what I think what they're asking is, how can you tell how strong a magic mushroom is going to be? How do you how do you do testing on it when it's a natural substance? And it can be different strengths. Yeah. So just just to clarify, in the the clinical studies, hmm. they're not uh, telling people to uh, ingest a handful of fungus that have been that's been picked from a field. This hmm. is chemically synthesized, and it's chemically synthesized psilocybin. <clears throat> excuse me, which is the active psychedelic drug in magic mushrooms. And that was isolated back in the 1960s. And that has produced the same standard and quality as ordinary pharmaceuticals. So it's really high quality synthesized chemical. Mm. Um, another person's asking about um, 
I've had, uh, this is Lynn, hello Lynn. Um, I've had patients who report buying um, psychedelics and microdosing as a way of reducing quack, quack use. Any thoughts on effectiveness or safety around this? <clears throat> You can feel free to pass on questions if they're going to get into trouble. No, 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 it's, it's, <laughs> it's uh, well, you know, one, one of my main interests is, is, is in uh, drug use and dependence. And, and we know that people in drug services use a whole range of drugs for pleasure, for recreation, but also to manage their so-called problematic use. So it, so it doesn't surprise me. Uh, cannabis is very popular to manage withdrawal and side effects and things like that. It doesn't surprise me. There's been no research into this. Mm. Uh, and I think it would be a long time before that is the case. And in terms of addiction more generally, there's been research into the use of psilocybin into smoking cessation. Yeah. Uh, there was some early research in the 60s looking at LSD and, and heroin use. Uh, a recent study was published looking at MDMA and uh, supporting people uh, through alcohol detox and, and alcohol use disorders. But nothing at the moment around crack, although uh, there's a drug called Ibogaine, which again is a natural product, and that was used in the 80s and 90s, sometimes used as an adjunct to psychotherapy for uh cocaine addiction, cocaine use disorders and crack as well. So it really doesn't surprise me that people are using those substances, but there's no evidence for efficacy at the moment. Uh, one from Emma. Hello, Emma. Now, please, can you let me know if there's been any specific research into microdosing undertaken by people in recovery from addictions? Uh, simple answer is no, that hasn't. Uh, but the, there is a number of groups who are interested in looking at microdosing in, in universities in the Netherlands, but also in Imperial in London. And I suspect that maybe microdosing and those sorts of functions will will bound to be on, on, on the horizon. Mm. Uh, we've got another question um, from Vanessa. Thanks, Vanessa. Uh, what's the latest on psychedelics within psychotherapy? And um, I've heard psychedelics are starting to be used uh, as treatment for anorexia. So comment on those. <clears throat> yeah, so, so we've already spoken briefly about uh, the mental health implications and some of the clinical studies. Mm. In terms of uh, anorexia, I think there's a new study, if I remember correctly, there's a new study which is where they're recruiting from the psychedelic research group at Imperial, again, who do a lot mm. of this work. I think they're recruiting at the moment. I don't think they're ready to uh, report yet. So that will probably take a year or two to get that data. And, and what was the other part of the question? Sorry. That one was about um, psychedelics in anorexia and the other one was on um, psychotherapy. Yeah, yeah. So when we talk about clinical uses of psychedelics, we are actually talking about administering the drug and having a psychotherapy at the same time. I, I should have mm. made that a bit clearer. Mm. It's not that there are some models where you do give people the drugs, but the, the, the model, the intervention model, which is the most popular at the moment is psychotherapeutic intervention and the drug as well. Yeah. And that, that's interesting because we don't really know where we've got these positive effects, how it's working, you know, what are the mechanisms, mm -hmm. how important is the drug, how important is the psychotherapy, what is the interaction between the two? Because you'll know yourself, Nikki, mm -hmm. that we don't really know how many psychotherapies actually work. Now, even something as sim relatively simple as CBT, we don't really know how it works. And we don't uh, measure effectively when it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, We always yeah. assume that it's without negative impact, and that's yeah. not necessarily the case either, because it's never yeah. been properly looked at. Yeah, so, 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 in, so in terms of mechanisms of this, it, it's difficult to know, but, uh, but, but, but there's a very structured 
psychotherapeutic components to these treatment models. Uh, these have been developed over time. There are different ones. Uh, and this is where when we think about how you apply these sorts of models into regular clinical practice, where there might be some stumbling blocks, because they require a lot of preparation, not only with the participant, mm -hmm. but with the, uh, the therapist as well. Often in really nice surroundings, relaxing surroundings, nice music, nice lights, a lot of attention, yeah. lovely, lovely classical music uh, and, you know, a really focused thing. And, and that's great. But then you think about the realities of clinical practice in many in, in, in many parts of, of the country. And I think it's probably fair mm -hmm. to say that replicating that in clinical practice might be a bit difficult. So at the moment, uh, there's a couple of clinics which have opened up, which are offering to the general public outside of research trials, uh, psychedelic therapies in, in the UK. Uh, but that tends to be focused on ketamine because that's already a market approved drug and it's, 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 it's much easier to do that. And that's very much based on that model. You have to pay to access it. So already maybe setting up barriers to the types of uh, individual mm. who can access that. Uh, you know, again, lots of research to do, particularly around the cost effectiveness of this. How expensive would this really hands-on, really in-depth psychotherapeutic approach? Mm. Can we actually afford that? Can the NHS afford that? Or is it going to stay within the domains of private practice? Mm. I have doubts whether we can actually cross that cost effectiveness threshold using mm. these really intensive therapeutic models which are being trialed at the moment. Mm. I think when we can't deliver therapeutic models at scale, they're just therapeutic models, I think you then have a question, don't you, over what's going on. But I can see that you know, it's really important, I think, for practitioners to get their head around this, because the more that these, these claims are made at such a high level, in generically very accessible in, in newspapers all the time, the more it's going to set up kind of a false expectation for people. And people who you rightly say are really desperate. So people are experiencing long-term pain, people are looking at end-of-life care, people who are really wishing and hoping to see something very, very different. And I can, yeah. I can imagine it's going to cause a bit of a, an issue at some point. Yeah, so, so I don't think we're going to see any changes to the educational and training curriculum for nurses and doctors just yet. Yeah. But there will be interest. And we saw that with after all the excuse me, announcements mm -hmm. around medicinal cannabis. I can't remember the exact figures, but there was polls taken just before the law was changed around medicinal cannabis. There's a really high percentage of patients who potentially would ask their doctors, their GPs, about whether medicinal cannabis was right for them and whether it could be used for their particular ailments. And there was real concern within the medical community at the time about, well, how do we respond to this? There's this massive patient interest, and we can't really do anything about this, firstly, because we don't know much about these substances to begin with. But mm. if we do know about them, we know they're probably not effective or right for those patients. But we have patients who are asking about them and have a right to ask about them and have mm. these expectations. And what does that actually tell us about the therapies that we're offering to them in usual practice? Mm. Uh, you know, why, why, why are those therapies aren't satisfactory? Aren't they working? So it raises these really big questions. And I, I do suspect that, that there's, there's going to be many practitioners who may be watching this, who in the next year or so, they'll have a patient or, or even a friend or family member asking them about their opinion about this. Mm. So I think, you know, it's good to be 
be prepared for those sorts of conversations. Mm, and also about how to just keep keep people a little bit grounded, because I think I think you're right. I think the researchers are doing really quite respectful and respectable work, but then <laughs> who knows how that's getting reported at the moment? Because you know, on one hand, we've got universities putting academics under a lot of pressure to be, you know. Like, um, I'm trying to find a polite word for it, performative maybe. So it's not yeah. just about sharing your information, it's actually sharing it in a kind of showbiz way. And, you know, we've always had this problem in studies, haven't we, with kind of like bias issues, where if you bring back a study that says, oh, I've, I've found more questions, everyone's like, but if you can say an, an apple will make you live forever, everyone's like, yes, that research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think there's something to be said about people's hopefulness. Yeah. And, shadowing and I think psychedelics is, is a really good example of this for, for, for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. And uh, an example, when you were talking then, an example sprung mm -hmm. to mind. I mentioned before about there was a, a relatively recently published trial looking at uh, the use of MDMA as part of a a psychological intervention for people with alcohol use disorders and it was a small proof of concept study you know it was a it was completely it was a very interesting study really good study but it was you know it was quite basic it it was something that scientists would look at and say oh yes more studies more interest is needed but headlines all over the newspapers some of the researchers involved uh, maybe became a bit uh, enthusiastic and, and, and have been uh, and you, you can kind of understand that because many academics uh, often toil for decades with nobody interested in their research. Brutal, brutal <laughs> yeah. <other> people. <laughs> but I think I think when you do research into maybe the positive and beneficial aspects mm. of formally controlled drugs or mm. drugs, the mm. evil of drugs, etc., then I think there's almost a backlash to a lot of the negative propaganda that we've had around drugs. We've had. Before we came on uh, on mm. video tonight, we were chatting yeah. about reefer madness, weren't we? <laughs> we and were. to, to, to all they, in, they won't know what that is. Oh well, yeah. <laughs> uh, but but for for all in, in intents and purposes, mm. most of the popular discussion around drugs has been negative, and has yeah. been exaggerated for the last fifty or so years. Those of us working in the field know it's exaggerated, and actually, it's more shades of grey and nuance than that. It can be problematic for some people, but it's a minority mm. of people. So I think that when you begin to get new findings and reconsiderations of the impact of drugs, particularly it's positive, you've got that weight of negative history that you're fighting Absolutely. against and shouting against. So to a certain extent, I can understand why there's uh, so much focus on this. Mm. Absolutely. So if, um, if Dave hadn't had the opportunity to uh, retweet out Reefer Madness, please do. <laughs> I think we're getting to a stage now where um, we've got an issue with. Is it just me, or is it everybody that's gone that's gone dead? Uh, Are you still there? Too? I'm back in the I'm back in the room now. Yeah. Okay. I was just talking about. I, I really hope we take this opportunity to ask either Dave or Vanessa to tweet out the trailer to Reefer Madness. So we <laughs> could see that what we were talking about. And what we were what we were talking about was this idea of um, almost drug use being um, turned into a monster rather than an issue for us to think about what, what does this tell us about human nature, human need, the way we treat each other in society. And beforehand as well, we were talking a little bit about um, people making statements like LSD is going to cure depression. Mm. And that's... that's that's not true. It's not true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it might help with symptoms, as you were saying, but it's it's the, the nature of humanness hasn't changed. 
Totally yeah, 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 totally, totally. And as we've become to understand more about how mental ill health and mental health arises, we've realised that it's more than beyond the brain. You know, it is beyond the brain. It's not just mm. synapses and neurotransmitters. It's our interactions mm. with other people. It's where we live. Mm. It's our housing. It's our job. It's the quality mm. of our relationships. And to expect that taking uh, uh, 125 milligrams of MDMA or uh, 250 micrograms of LSD is going mm. to resolve some of those big issues is mm. is, is, is pretty naive. Mm. Uh, and also thinking about some of the, str- you mentioned this before, Nikki, mm. some of the struggles that people are actually getting, are, are, are facing to achieve basic support anyway. Waiting lists for mental mm. health services. We know there's huge inequalities depending upon who you live, who you are. Uh, massive disparities between access to mental health services for people in BME communities, for example, those who live in more deprived communities. Uh, I remember remember talking to a colleague a few weeks ago who was talking about uh, adolescents who were waiting months, who were waiting months to get specialised treatment if they had met the threshold for that. So we can talk about, we can talk about the promise that psychedelics hold, but then we should also place that against the reality, the reality of, of the world that we're living in and some of these wider challenges. Mm. And those wider challenges are not going to be addressed in the clinic. They're not going to be, they can be helped. You know, that's mm. part of the response. It's part of the equation. Mm. But it's also what's help, happening in people's lives more generally. And I think that's really important. So, and I think sometimes maybe it's because historically, We've 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 placed so much faith in uh, pharmacology and psychopharmacology, and you know we go to our doctor and we want an antidepressant to help us. And mm. you know, for m- most people, that's the way we think about mental illness. We'll get a, a pill for mm. it, or, or we'll just have a, mm. or if you're lucky, you know, having a talking therapy. So I think we have maybe a simplistic view about how we respond to mental health and how we improve mental health. So I think psychedelics easily fit into that outdated model without understanding the wider picture. So we need to make sure we always talk about those additional environmental factors as well. It's really interesting, isn't it? I I, I can't believe how fast like like forty five minutes has gone like that. Oh, right, I found yeah. that really really interesting. So, but I guess well, what this takes us to is it, it it's a different way of of looking at the problems we we still have, isn't it? So it's a different way of thinking about you know how. Every it kind of covers everything, psychedelics, doesn't it? About how we research and report information, how the general public has an understanding of information as well, particularly science reporting, mm-hmm. which it, every time stories like this happen, you just see how low the overall level of understanding of science reporting is for people. And that's partly because of the way it's reported, but also sometimes as a population, we don't always have the skills that we should have to be discerning about information, particularly. You know, it's the eight out of ten, eight, eight out of ten cats again, isn't it? So, oh, that sounds like a right good study. Mm, yeah. <laughs> no, cats yeah. don't report. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> so there's something to be said about you know the kind of experiences we have, but also you, you're rightly pointing out uh, kind of the state that our community is in, but also mm-hmm. um, our services. You know, for, for all this, you know, really interesting, innovative, cutting edge research, we're not really in a position to deliver that yet. At absolutely, all. Ab- absolutely. Uh, I know we haven't got a lot of time, but I think a really important 
maybe it would be a, a conversation for another day is about the commercial aspect of this and private money interests in this. And mm-hmm. this is something I'm particularly interested in mm-hmm. uh, and how psychedelics and the psychedelic experience and the therapeutic experience has begun to become commodified. And there's a mm-hmm. lot of private money interest in this. And therefore there's a lot of private interest in ensuring that people think about psychedelics in a way that serves those private interests. It's like the pharmaceutical industry. It's it, the new generation mm. of pharmaceutical industry. Maybe that's a bit cynical, but well, not it's really. definitely look evidence. At the, look at the overlap that happened between, you know, the kind of family farms of cannabis farmers, and then all of a sudden the people who just got in and, and scaled up, taking lessons from cigarettes and alcohol and medicine and combining them and advertising. You're almost getting kind of Etsy pop-ups now. <laughs> it's like yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah combination isn't it of of different factors and forces if you want to get rich quick invest your money in psilocybin companies who are working on psilocybin that's my there's no way that you can top that as an exit line now yeah okay yeah don't blame me if you lose your savings i'm sorry (laughs) other 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 investment opportunities are available of course yeah but thank you so much to our guest tonight. I've had a really interesting discussion. I can see there's still people are, people are retweeting the uh, trailer there for Reef of Madness. So well done. <laughs> Eric. You've launched that on another generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and just thank you so much for your time. Very, very much appreciated. Oh, no, thanks Good for inviting me. Yeah, Good night, all. Bye-bye.